Welcome to Win the Day with Wasson, presented by MarketScale in partnership with WTD Consulting. Let's deep dive into the principles and perspectives that have shaped the winning mindsets with our guests focused on driving people performance. Confident our guests can help you unlock the coveted it factor that we believe is a learnable trait enabling the separation for success in a world of human commoditization. Like to welcome our Win the Day community. We are in for a super treat today. Live in our Dallas studios at the Market Scale Studio, an individual who is no stranger to the camera, usually doing the interviews. But let me welcome a 13-time Emmy winner, a internationally recognized face to the camera, a 30-year-plus career in broadcasting, and the best hair in the business, <laughs> Rick Renner. Welcome to the studio. Hey, good to see you, man. Chase, thank you. I, I resemble that remark. But, man, i got to tell you, this has got to be the biggest break in my broadcasting career, being out here with one of the greatest quarterbacks in Texas high school state history. Well, I, uh, I, I think that's more me living in the past. But I think <laughs> for the moment and for our audience, Rick, you've always been the guy who's asked the tough questions. And for those that really don't know your journey and your story and – and the places you've been, the people you've interviewed, I think for our Win the Day audience, them getting a peek behind the curtain of really what makes you tick is gonna broaden their perspective to the man behind the hair, the man behind the suit. So can't thank you enough for being here, and let's dive in. So Rick, I know you're a big Syracuse Orange, Orange fan, Obviously, that's where you were educated. Probably the most well-respected broadcasting school. The best. The best. I know people say Northwestern Texas. It's the best. Well, I think that goes along with that win the day mentality you have, as you always have aligned with the best. <laughs> but for our audience, Rick, walk us through before Rick Suave Renner, his personality <laughs> started. What was the journey like to get you to Syracuse? Well, it's kind of an interesting one. Um, you know, it depends on how far you want me to go back, but, uh, you know, I can go back. You know, I grew up in South Florida, and uh, one of the, the guys in my family that, that I really looked up to uh, was my cousin Kevin Cottrell, who's a big-time disc jockey in New York City. And I always wanted to be like him. And, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I was doing clubs, bar mitzvahs, Divorce parties, weddings, whatever. Divorce parties are always the best ones to DJ at because everybody's in a good mood. Um, but I used to DJ at some clubs in South Florida like Boca Raton, Club Boca, Penrods back in the day. If anybody's been down there in South Florida, they know about that. Pretty much a monkey could you know DJ at those places because you'd have like 3,000 people in there ready to party and have a good time. Um, but I had a great time doing that stuff. You know, pumping wattage in a cottage, homes in a homes, and megahertz up the skirts, and footloose and fiance free back then. But I always wanted to be a DJ and I always wanted to be like my cousin. And uh, and so I would go up, you know, to New York. Um, one of my father figures in my life uh, is Doug Williams, uh, my uh, my 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 Dave Williams, I should say. I got Doug in my mind because of the uh, the, uh, the the Super Bowl, Super Bowl. recently uh, and all the celebration of African-American quarterbacks that we saw that for the first time ever going in the Super Bowl at it. But, you know, not to get off on a tangent, but Dave Williams was my uncle growing up and he was like a father figure for me. And I would go up summers and hang out with him at Rescue One, uh, you know, and drive around on his uh, fire truck and have a great time. And uh, and I'd be around my cousin and see him DJing. And I wanted to be a DJ. And so then I kind of heard about Syracuse being a great broadcasting school. And so I went there to be a DJ. And so I was doing, you know, 
better hit music radio, top 40. Uh, I was doing jazz, all anything I can do to just kind of work on my voice and work on the broadcasting element, all this stuff. And uh, so when I went up there, I realized that I could get better seats to the games if I was a sportscaster. That's why I started doing sportscasting. And at the time, you know, our basketball team was always one of the best in the country. You know, we had Ronnie Cycli, Dwayne the Pearl Washington, Raphael Addison, all the names go on and on. And uh, our football team was really good as well. We had, uh, you know, the Donovan McNabb of that time, Donnie McPherson, who is in the College Football Hall of Fame, and Moose Johnston was on that team. I was in his class, um, you know, at that time. So uh, we had a football team that went undefeated, ended up number four in the country because Auburn tied us in the Sugar Bowl. Still mad at Auburn for that. And then, of course, uh, my junior year, uh, the basketball team went all the way to the Final Four and lost to Indiana on a last-second shot from Keith Smart, who ended up being a San Antonio Spur, uh, you know, down the line uh, for a short little time. But uh, you know, that was the whole way I got into broadcasting, being a sportscaster. I was a DJ first, and then I realized, wow, I really like sports so much. This is the way I'm going to go. And the rest is history, you know, nearly 30 years of doing it. Well, a tremendous track record of success. I think Thank for you. our audience, they heard a couple of things. The first and foremost is passion. Yeah. I think you've got a tremendous way of communicating, a tremendous way of landing on people. And I think that started from some of the things you talked about of a vision, which you commented on. I know you've got a background in sports yourself, a competitive athlete, but finding ways to put yourself in a position to succeed. And for our audience, Rick, a lot of our audience is looking for, how do I unlock that it factor? Whatever it might be in life, how do I unlock it? As you talk through your experience at Syracuse, and especially being around some of those champions and winners, et cetera, what were some things you saw early on in your career as a broadcaster that helped you unlock the it factor that ultimately started to propel your career? Well, I think the big thing is, you know, obviously I love being around sports. I, you know, I was one of those guys, nobody does this anymore, where they play football, basketball, and baseball. You got to commit to one sport when they're five years old. And I know your kids are young. They're probably already committed. I see them playing soccer and stuff on your videos. But, um, you know, I, I was uh, good at everything, but not great at one thing as far as sports go. And that was, you know, I, I kept saying to myself, all right, I want to play basketball. I want to play football. I grew up in South Florida. I got to watch Michael Irvin, uh, you know, at St. Thomas Aquinas in the Fort Lauderdale area, score six, six touchdowns and one half against us in the playoffs, and we had no chance. Were you the cornerback? I was the fourth-string quarterback and got thrown in the, the end of the game, and half of their line was going to the SEC, so I ran backwards. <laughs> and then when I got to Syracuse, uh, I tried out, tried to be a walk-on, and I basically held tackling dummies for Moose Johnston. So and whenever I did see him during those broadcasting years, you know, I'd always hold up the dummy and say, go ahead, go ahead. And he's like, come on, man, you're better than that. No, go ahead and hit me. You know, that was the stuff I was doing. But uh, that's when my broadcasting career really took off, when I realized that I wasn't as good as those guys. You know, and I thought, well, I could be around sports. I got a passion for this. Better seats to the game. Let's do it. You know, and you think, you know, about Syracuse, Marv Albert, Bob Costas, yeah. Michael Tirico was in my class. He's actually younger than me, although he does look a little bit older, I must say. No, I'm kidding. But Mike, Michael was awesome from day one. He was interning at one station, uh, TVH, I believe, in Syracuse. I was at Channel 9, and both sports guys at TVH left to go to Buffalo. He was an intern in college. They threw him on the air. He was a little nervous the first night. 
He was awesome the second night, and then he was on his way. One of the most knowledgeable guys, one of the most amazing broadcasters. But so many sports guys that have been in the industry all over the country, um, around my class and before, the Dick Stocktons, you know, and Vanessa Williams was there. There's so many people because of the Visual and Performing Arts School that people got into broadcasting. And when I got there, I fell in love with it, and there was such a passion, and all of us really pushed each other to be great broadcasters. You know, Doug Sherman uh, is, uh, you know, one of the announcers on ESPN. He does a lot of the basketball games. Um, he's a close personal friend of mine and a superstar. I've always wanted to be like him in the broadcasting game. But so many of those guys, we pushed each other to be better and learn the business. And so many people that come out of Syracuse, they're ready to go. They're ready to work from day one. And that's, that's what I got out of that and gave me the passion, you know, to keep getting better and constantly look at yourself. I don't really like enjoy, enjoy watching myself on television, but that's the best way to get yourself better. No critic is better than yourself. Well, I can tell you, you obviously look good, you sound good, <laughs> and you, you land good. So a couple things I want to dig a little deeper on that, Rick, especially I think there's a lot of application, especially for our audience that's in a variety of different arenas. But you said you surrounded yourself with greatness and people that maybe not so much from a mentorship you know, relationship, but you were around folks that pushed you. Let's talk through that, how you always had that competitive mindset to be great as a broadcaster. But for our audience that might be in a, you know, a different arena, what's the importance of surrounding yourself with greatness? Well, you're only going to get part of that, you know. Um, and you're going to try to take it to another level. And that, that was my big thing. Like I looked at, uh, you know, Tony Caridi, uh, Greg Papa, who was a senior when I was a freshman at Syracuse. And he ended up doing Golden State Warriors, you know, basketball in Indiana. I think he was an Indiana Pacers right out of college. Um, Sean McDonough's another one. You've seen Sean. He, he's on all the NCAA games. He was a senior when I was a freshman. And I watched him, and right out of school, he was doing Boston Bruins play-by-play. -play. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going straight to New York out of school. But instead, I went to Lafayette, Louisiana, which is kind of like New York, but you got better food. So, um, But those guys, they, they drove me to get to where I was. And I kept thinking, I know I can do this. And I had to do a lot of moving to get there. And there's a lot of trials and tribulations because the stations that take chances on you are probably the stations that are not doing very well because they're the ones that have all the changes. So as you're working your way up, you're dealing with a lot of that stuff. And I've worked at stations that were in bankruptcy. I worked in, you know, at stations that, you know, one day we came in and we're doing the news and the next day they're like, well, we're not doing the news anymore. We were sold and good luck to all of you. And you're sitting there, you know, in the middle of the country in, you know, Lansing, Michigan, and you're wondering, all right, where's my next move? You know, do I need to really do something else and go get a real job? But that was always the motivating factor when I saw the success of all the guys before me and all the guys around me, and I just kept fighting. You know, I look at my class, and, you know, Michael Tarico, myself, and a few others are the only ones standing still working in the business because so many people got tired of the moving and making no money. You know, my first job, I got 12 grand a year. Mm -hmm. You know, I was actually working at Piggly Wiggly, you know, and, and DJing on the side, making more money than I did in my TV job, you know, and people would be like, are you the guy on TV? I'm like, no, paper or plastic. Well, you know? and I think to dig a little <laughs> deeper, 12 grand doesn't even pay for your suits nowadays. Exactly. Uh, as, as sharp as you look, but... <laughs> What I hear through that, Rick, and, and for our audience that has just seen this side of you on the camera, they don't realize the process, the journey, the we're a big communicator on this show of visualization fuels realization. Yeah. 
What I hear you talk through and, and maybe deep dive a little bit more into this is, is that journey. You took a risk on yourself in these maybe smaller markets. What'd you learn along the way that ultimately positioned you to really be the face of Southwest sports that we all know you today? I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I think the one thing I learned, if, if you're a broadcast student out there, do something else. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but seriously, do something else. No, um, you know, I think when I got out of school, think about this. Uh, you know, my family is East Coast. I grew up in South Florida. I have so many, so many family members that are in New York. My first job is Lafayette, Louisiana. You know, and I was like, what am I doing here? You know, and I'm in the middle of all the Cajuns trying to understand how they talk and how they compare everything to move, you know, food. And, you know, you know, if the offense plays, the defense plays, the whole team plays and what it's good for the gumbo is good for us. And you're like, what's that? You know, I had one high school coach say that to me every single time I interviewed him, you know, but the the journey was I'm going to get to a big market. I'm going to get there and I'm going to be around professional teams and major colleges. And that was what really drove me. And, you know, Texas high school sports, that was always in the back of my mind, you know, and I'm a Floridian. And I'll tell you, the schools are great in Florida. They do an unbelievable job. The speed and the talent is off, obviously unbelievable in the state of Florida. But you could take the largest classification in the state of Florida, and they will actually have less fans at the game than a six-man game at AT&T Stadium. And that tells you everything you need to know about Texas high school sports, which I love so much and love covering you. Um, but to not get off the tangent there, you know, I took a chance on myself, and I said, all right, I'm going to do this. And I'm in the middle of nowhere. I don't know anybody trying to learn the town, and I'm at a station that wasn't doing very well. And then I had to go to Alexandria, Louisiana, which is like 200th market, you know, and we had Northwestern State to cover and it was all high schools. And then there I go to Tyler, Texas, and now I get a taste of Texas high school sports. That station was in chapter seven bankruptcy and our weather guy left to go to, uh, to Austin and they had me do weather and sports on that station. And I didn't know anything about weather. So I was really worried that I was going to embarrass myself or have people mad about my forecast. So I used to always say, partly cloudy, chance of rain. We really don't know what the chance is, but at least I'm safe. Yeah. You know, and there'd be tornadoes and all kinds of bad weather and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, those experiences made me stronger in life. And I think back to those Tyler days, it was so funny. You know, I was, my real name is Eric Renner, which a lot of people don't know. And the reason why it turned into Rick Renner is when I was in Lafayette, Louisiana, we had consultants that come into town and we call them insultants. They have all these genius ideas of how you should do television. So they came into our studios and they looked at me and they said, well, you're in Cajun country. You got to look and sound Cajun French. So they gave me a black perm and I had to change my name to Rico Rene, right? And so imagine like you're like a blonde guy and then one day you got like black curls. You don't know what your name is and I'm doing this and then I'm out of work in six months and my resume tapes got like four different hair haircuts. Now, normally I do kind of have different hair thing go going on all the time, but I had to go through all of that and still, I can't believe anybody hired me on that. And they did in Alexandria and then to Tyler. Um, but, you know, those trials and tribulations in those small markets making no money, you know, knowing that, okay, eventually... If I could just make 20 grand a year, I'll be really making it. And I kept thinking that, you know, and then eventually, you know, it started snowballing. Well, what I hear, and I think especially for our audience, your demeanor, your delivery, your brand, that didn't change at the market you were at. But those lessons you talked through positioned you to be able to sit across from the biggest names in sports, 
yeah. that ultimately built your career. So you mentioned high school football. Obviously now, Rick, social media is everywhere. Backtrack 15, 20 years ago, if you had the opportunity to be mentioned by Rick Renner on <laughs> Fox Sports Southwest Friday Night Football, which you built the brand, I mean, that was as big as it got. So walk our audience through, Rick, kind of how you envision the brand of not only Rick Renner, but how you built what's known today, I guess, as Bally Sports. But back then, the Friday night show that you essentially created that was the ultimate you know, sense of, of purpose and fulfillment if you were able to have highlights and be part of teams that, that you yourself commented on. Yeah, and you know, you have to give a lot of credit to the Hall of Famer, Craig Way. I mean, I've worked with him and he worked before me and he's really the guy that everything was centered around. His knowledge, I mean, he's been to every town in the state of Texas. He knows every single mascot. He's probably the only guy that knows, uh, for some reason, coyotes turn into coyotes at Waco. I don't know what happens, but that happens. Is it Brahmas, Brahmas? I never met a more brilliant man in my life. The guy has such a passion. He and I, are, it was so fun to hang out with him for all these years. And then Greg Tepper over at Dave Campbell's Texas Football Magazine. He's another one. He's just the, the, the knowledge that those two guys have. I'm constantly asking him questions. What about this guy? What about that guy? But I think back to the early days. And when I first got here and Fox Sports Southwest started, you know, we start June 1st of 2000. And Scoreboard Live had existed before that, you know, with Craig and, you know, with Prime Sports and other things. Um, and then it continued to evolve. But back then, you know, we didn't have the internet. We couldn't just send highlights in an email. So we had to have people drive the highlights in, you know. So, you know, there are big giant black holes in the whole state where we just could not get video out of. You know, like the Permian Basin. And I mean, come on, man. It's Friday Night Lights with yeah. Odessa Permian and Midland Lee and all that stuff out there. You want to get them in the show. And we would get them in and, you know, and do highlight, you know, as far as I was always looking for stats or whatever I could find, little things. And that's another thing that was very hard to find. Mm -hmm. You didn't have Twitter. You know, so some kid's got a 600-yard performance and it's a state record. You had no idea until like three days later before anybody could actually look it up and see if it was a record and then hope that their old school coach would pick up the phone and talk to somebody that would get that out there. You just didn't have the information. And that was the hardest thing about the early stages. You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, we've I, recently I talked to Patrick Mahomes, high school coach at White House, you know, in East Texas. And uh, for my podcast, Texas High School Hysteria, and he had some unbelievable stories. And I thought back to when Patrick Mahomes was playing, and he's still a very, very young guy. But think about this. The way we got video from his games, we had a country guy who was in a pickup truck. He literally would go to his game and shoot the first quarter, sometimes leave halfway through the first quarter, and drive it from East Texas to Dallas. So that's a two-and-a-half, three-hour trip. Right. So we would put the East Texas segment of our show at the very bottom of the show. So it's almost it's pushing it whether or not he's going to get there in time for us to get it on the air. And then we'd get a script and it'd be like Patrick Mahomes to, you know, Cantrell, Dylan Cantrell. The two of them were at Texas Tech together. And you just see, you know, Mahomes to Cantrell. You know, you see the first time I saw highlights of him. I'm like, who is this guy? Is it Mahomes? Is it Mahomes? Is he related to the old Texas Rangers pitcher? Who is he? You know? And then you kept seeing all these highlights and see all these touchdowns and stuff. But we literally would get it right before we, you know, so many times we're looking at those highlights for the very first time when they're on the air, you know, back wow. then. And, you know, if you ever got any video from the Valley, 
you know, Valley people would have to, Rio Grande, they would have to drive it to Houston or San Antonio and feed it up. You know, and you're talking about feeding it at midnight, you know, for a show that starts. I was always amazed, like, why are we doing this show at midnight? And I'm like, we need it every single moment to get yeah. those things on the air. But now it's like so great. I mean, everybody and their mother is shooting video and there's some play of something and you may not have a photographer there, but somebody's probably got it on their phone and they'll put it on Twitter and boom, you're on your way. That's right. And that's the part that I really like about it. But you think about the old days, it was so hard to get information. And that, that show is a tremendous amount of research because I want to know about every star quarterback. I want to know about every player, you know, who's hurt, who's not playing. What's the story of the team and why are they the best team and why do they have a shot at winning a state championship? That That's something that I would work on all week long, you know, and guys like Greg Tepper and Craig Way, they got that stuff in their head all the time. So Well, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I think obviously we're, we're in the great state of Texas here and, and for those players that are still out there, it's such a highlight to be on that show, but I think you discredited yourself a little bit yeah. on the brand you built. And I think that was a tremendous platform also, Rick, for you to really propel your career into that professional setting. So as we kind of transition from all the work you did there, walk our audience through what happened next for Rick, lessons you learned through covering the greatest sport in Texas high school in football, and obviously there was volleyball and a lot of other sports you guys dived into, but what were some things through those you know, experiences that parlayed your career into the big leagues now in the professional arena? Yeah, well, you know, the, the cool thing about being on a regional sports network that goes to five states, you know, we had the rights to all these teams. And, you know, we used to have Astros and Rockets, but there's constantly these battles where, you know, Houston kind of hated Dallas, you know, Dallas didn't really care. You know, so it was, and so the Houston teams didn't love the fact that our, you know, headquarters was in Dallas, you know, so that was an issue. And then eventually they kind of broke off and, you know, went the Comcast way. Um, but then we picked up the New Orleans Pelicans. At the time we picked them up, they were the Hornets, you know, and then we picked up the Oklahoma City Thunder, which was really fun and covering Kevin Durant. Yeah. You know, we covered him back to uh, his days at the University of Texas and how he was, you know, a player of the year candidate and, and such an amazing player and an amazing guy, you know. Um, so that part of it was so great because, you know, we had the built-in region. I love the high school. That's where my biggest passion always was. Um, but I was associated with the San Antonio Spurs for 21 years mm -hmm. doing pregames and postgame shows. And that is the winningest franchise during that period of, of any sport, you know, and you're dealing with Coach Pop, well-run organization, unbelievable human beings and Tim Duncan, Tony Parker and Mono Ginobili. And I was able to be a part of four you know, world championships with them, although Pop won't call them world. He says they're NBA championships. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. All those boat parades, San Antonio's an unbelievable city, and the fans are so passionate. I mean, the fans are so crazy about Spurs basketball. If the game's at 7 o'clock, you know, they're turning their TVs on Fox Sports Southwest at 4 o'clock just so they don't miss anything. Well, let's dive into that. And fortunately, you never ended up in the Riverwalk at any of those parades. <laughs> but you were able to be around champions and interviewing guys like Coach Popovich, Tim Duncan, Parker, Ginobili, all these guys you reference. For our community, Rick, what were some pearls or, or ways of thinking that you saw from them that really you thought, well, that's why these guys are winning. That's the it factor that these individuals have. Is there anything you can share that really stands out? The way those guys work. 
I mean, you know, as great as they are, and I've seen it with other teams where they'll win a championship, and what got them to that championship, they're not doing anymore. They're not working like they... Those guys always worked. You never knew that they won a title. You know, if it was up to Pop, he would never let those banners be in the, you know, in the gymnasium. Because he doesn't want to talk about the past. He wants to talk about the future. And that's how they always thought about things. And, you know, Tim Duncan, Tony Park, those guys worked. And Mono Ginobili, I mean, he, he's a guy that, you know, he can have a separated shoulder, broken ribs. He wants to play. He, he literally is going to play, and Pop has to talk him into sitting. You know, because Papa's always, you know, very careful about the minutes. You know, people always talk about, you know, the resting. I really think a lot of that started in San Antonio because Pop knew the big vision and winning a championship and protecting guys from themselves that would hurt the team later, which is genius. Nobody thinks about that. And people will look around and go, oh, well, this guy's sitting, this guy's. No, there are reasons why those guys are sitting and the reasons why those guys are hurt. You know, and and in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and covering the Mavericks as well, Mm -hmm. you know, Dirk and, and when Steve Nash were here, we used to wait hours to get them after practice because they'd sit there and hit their free throws and, and work. They were always working, mm-hmm. and that was a passion. And I and I thought, man, I'm going to bring this to television as well. I'm going to always work. I want to know everything. I'm reading everything. I want to know every little fact about every guy. And then you know, you when you come to the table, and I'm sure you've done it with your show here, you'll come with a whole list of all the stuff you want to ask and you probably ask like 20% of it. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've done that where I just have books and books, but then it'll be like halfway through the season, I'll remember that one note about Manu Ginobili and his relationship with this player and they're playing in this game. And I saw them hugging at the end and I'm like bringing it up in a post-game show. So it's interesting you touch on. So, you know, a lot of our guests, they've talked through grit. They've talked through work. And a lot of them say the work is the expectation for the result. One thing that I've noticed with all of these guests that we've had on, most of them work in the shadows to shine in the light. And that's kind of a theme that has really stuck with me personally on these champions are doing the little things that ultimately land them on the vision, the championship, whatever it might be in whatever arena they're in to truly create the separation. So thank you for sharing that and giving our audience some perspective on really what makes these folks tick. So you end in San Antonio. You're still covering Dallas sports. Obviously, we're in the city of Dallas. Can, yeah. you, can you give our audience some perspective, Rick, on some of the things in the locker room that you saw, whether it's Cowboys, Mavericks, individual players, et cetera, that have really stood out in their way of thinking or just the way they communicate or, or really approach games? Yeah, and, you know, it's changed a lot, you know, in recent years. And I think COVID has done a lot to how we're around the guys and really knowing the guys because it turned into a lot of Zoom interviews. And uh, and I think a lot of that is, you know, very difficult because you're trying to get that story. You're trying to get inside that guy's mind. But, you know, there's always a wall with athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, you had it with us, right? When, when you were playing at South Lake Carroll, you know, you got to be careful. You can't be talking about Chase Daniel and all these other guys that play before you. Um, so I, I'm always fascinated by that stuff, you know, like, and, you know, I think about Troy Aikman, you know, when I was covering him, I was always fascinated about how he handled the media and it was almost like, okay, this is Troy with the media. And I was, I wondered, would he be different as an announcer? And he is, he's more critical. But back then when he was on his team, he had to be, he had to be a leader. He had to protect his guys when guys made mistakes, you know, um, there's one 
you know, one thing that was a really great lesson, I think about the Dallas Stars. You know, I got here right after the Dallas Stars won the Stanley Cup. And they were still, obviously, a championship-caliber team with, you know, Luddy and, you know, Madonna and all those guys. And I was always amazed at how guys could spin negative things into a positive thing, you know. And I remember Mike Madonna did this. There was a game, and he made a mistake. He went in a position somewhere. Something he did wrong led to a goal that made them lose. And I'm, not, I'm pretty sure it was in the playoffs. Could have been the Stanley Cup against the New Jersey Devils. And I remember we were waiting for him outside. And all the media were, you know, kind of talking to each other. Oh, he, he's not going to talk to us. He's going to disappear, whatever. They, they were like saying, I'm like, no, he's going to. I said, I think Mo's going to talk. Because Mo's a stand-up guy. He's always going to talk. And sure enough, he did talk. And he got up there and he goes, I messed up. I cost the team. It's all on me. And... Then nobody had any questions to ask him. You know, it was like, and then he was like, again, I messed up. I got to be better in that situation. I got to be smarter, pass it to my teammate, you know, and I, and I was like, holy cow. He totally spun that entire situation into a positive, And now he looks more like a hero. And I was fascinated by that, you know, and there are other guys that are that way as well. They, they, they understand the leadership role. They understand that they got to speak in those negative situations. You know, Bruce Bowen was a guy with the San Antonio Spurs. You know, when they would have a bad playoff game or they lost two games, they, they didn't lose two games in a row very often, you know. But when that would happen, Bruce Bowen was always up in front of the media. Now, Tim is great. Tim, Tim Duncan's one of the most intelligent guys you'll ever meet. It's really interesting to listen to him talk. But, you know, Tim, and I think Tim at times is probably like, oh, I'll talk to the media once in a while. You know, Sean Elliott used to always kid about that. You know, it's like, oh, we got Tim today. Tim actually talked. You know, and Tim is, and when he talks, it's like, oh, man, you got to roll the whole time. You know, but Bruce was always the guy in those difficult situations, controversial plays. He'd come out and he'd talk and he'd tell us, and he'd put a smile on his face and he would totally spin that thing like Madonna did that one time. And that, those are the things that jump out at you. You don't get that as much nowadays. And, you know, a lot of guys in the media here, you know, I think about Bill Jones and Mike Ducey and Joe Trahan over at Channel 8 now, um, you know, and Newey Scruggs, who's been here, you know, for two decades, a really good friend of mine and a very unbelievably smart broadcaster and has been in this community and knows stories and knows storytelling. All those guys will tell you it's changed. It's changed. And COVID's had a lot to do with that. Because it kind of goes back to when you covered the NCAA tournament in the early days. They wouldn't let us in the arena to do stand-ups and walk around. They put the coaches at the podium, and you just sit there in kind of a very vanilla room and fire out questions. It's not as personable. You don't get the answers you want to get, and, and you don't really get the stories you want to get. And then everybody gets it as well. So if somebody says something controversial, everybody's got it. There's nothing special about it. So, and that's where it's gone. And then when you bring in the Zoom factor, and then with the Zoom factor, if a guy has a bad game or a really bad moment, the team just won't even bring that guy out. So, you know, that's that's also an issue. Yeah. And it's it's evolved into that, and it wasn't that way in the past. You know, and in the past, you were able to go right up to those guys and ask them about a certain event that fans want to know. That's how I always looked at it. You know, what does the fan want to know? Yeah. What is the fan mad about? You know, and there, there are times where I would cover a game and I'd get in the car and listen to sports radio and there would be something I'd be like, why didn't I ask that? 
you know, I knew about that. I forgot about that. Or he was too short in his answers and he got out of there before I could ask that. Well, a couple of pearls I want to pull out from that is number one, a great communicator or reporter, which you're talking through, you were able to bring the audience into the mind of that competitor. The other thing that I heard you talk through, which is really going to resonate with our audience, Rick, is courageous leadership. Sometimes as leaders, things don't go the way any of us want to. But it sounds like, you know, these life lessons or, or taking a negative to a positive were things that ultimately landed like on Madonna or these other competitors that are the reasons why they're some of the best to ever play. So I appreciate you sharing that. The other thing I really want to peel back the layers on, there's no dinosaurs here anymore, right, Rick? Yeah. Those that didn't evolve became extinct. Yeah. You mentioned COVID impacting not just interview, but corporate environment, the whole sales process. What have you seen, especially with your background in broadcasting, some pearls for maybe younger broadcasters or even those that are out there right now, how to navigate a Zoom environment or really captivate an audience very fast now through these, these various ways of communication now that COVID is, is hindering access? Yeah, and not only the access, but how it looks. You know, think about Zoom. It's just you looking straight in. Most of the time people are looking down or they're, they're looking at the little box from a guy talking. So you're looking over here. You got kids running around in the background. There's all this noise. There's no concentration on what you're actually doing, you know? And that's, that's the biggest thing is it's just the concentration and the communication. And sitting here, you know, you're a friend of mine. And like I see, you know, I... I I, I know what you're thinking. I know because we're next to each other. Yeah. You don't have that anymore. You know, now you're just standing there looking at a TV, you know, and, and you're you're trying to be engaged. And there's been times where, you know, like a lot of the, the stuff that I do on my podcast and the stuff that I've had to do over the last three years um, has been on Zoom. And sometimes you got to really try to loosen them up to get them going because they start and it's just like, oh, another interview looking in the screen, you know, and you just you're not getting that personal yeah. side where they can connect with you. And that's that's a big, big issue. You know, think about how broadcasting has evolved in sports. And, and it's I think that it kind of fast forwarded all kinds of problems in sports. You know, you look at Bally Sports now right now, they're going through, you know, it's been heavily documented that they're going into bankruptcy and but think about what happened. You know, COVID happened and, you know, it all started with one player. And then, in, you know, the leagues didn't know what to do. They wanted to protect the fans. They wanted to protect the players. So they shut down. We had no sports to cover for several months. We never knew when sports was going to come back. If you're a sports network, what are you putting on the air? You know, that was like, we were all like, what's the future here? You know, then it turned into the interviews. We're broadcasting games. I think about Emily Jones, you know, the great Texas Rangers uh, sideline reporter. She's at the games at a brand new stadium and no fans and it's cardboard cutout fans, you know, and I'm, and she's walking around and I'm like, I, could you imagine if you told her that she, that's what she would have been doing? You know, we used to kid about that. I'm like, if I would have told you you were doing this one day, would you have believed me? You know, nobody would have believed any no, of this stuff. No, and, and you thank know? goodness we're out of that realm. <laughs> but no, to your point, and I think it's the, this is very applicable, even, Rick, with our community on Win the Day with Wasson. We've got a lot of various industry, you know, representatives across a variety of fields that are trying to get pearls on, how do I network in a, you know, 
no access environment. How do I captivate an audience? One thing on the Zoom background, and I know you're an expert at this through your podcast and some pearls for our audience. What do you think it matters on presentation, on virtual backdrops? Like what are things that from your experience in the news world and broadcasting that yeah. you would give pearls to our audience on how to truly captivate an audience that doesn't want to be there and that access is a barrier, but you still want to get that story or pull their personality out. You know, it's a really good point. And I think the the most important thing is you got to have good lighting. <laughs> you know, you know, you got to have good lighting. So the biggest thing, like in my house, I have like a big set of windows. Never put a window behind you. So I literally flip my office and I get all this great lighting naturally on my face. And you can do it with ring lights or whatever, but it's so important. You see people on Zooms and if they have the grainy footage, you know, if you have a bad computer, use your phone. Now phones kind of, you know, also look bad because it's always up and down. It's not sideways. Um, there's a way to fix that where, but you still have the black tails on the side, but how it looks is how you present yourself. So it is a very, very big key. And if you just get a halfway decent new computer and you will have a camera on there that's better than, you know, any camera that you would have in your house, yeah. you know, and it's simple. Your phone is always going to be the best and you can do that from anywhere. But if you can make sure that you have good lighting and, you know, and make sure that you're shot tight. It's funny because I'll get on these Zooms in our company and you look around and the ones that have the bad ones, there's always one guy who doesn't know how to work it. He's constantly hitting the video and he's not there. I And always be on video. It is the most important thing. The ironic part about podcast, the video, you know, Carl Weinstein, who I went to school with, start, you know, is a big part of Locked On, yeah. which is, a, you know, an international um, podcast company that has done so well. He told me the most important thing about a podcast is a video. Yeah. It's not actually what you're talking about. It's the video. Well, and I think for, you know? for our audience, they're tuned into those pearls. And obviously they're tuned into your personality, the charisma, the delivery. And, and this is the biggest thing I took away from what you talked about. And this has been an evolution of your career is the brand you set at the immediate onset of who is Rick Renner. And I think that's something, especially for our audience too, Rick, is the importance of when you do have a Zoom or a virtual connect, that first impression is a lasting impression. And I think that's really what's, exactly. that's what's helped position you to sit across from some of these icons in a variety of arenas to, you know, because of the brand you've set. It's simple, you know, I mean, it's, you gotta look at Zoom and anything in a company, and I don't care how low, whatever it is you're doing on Zoom, it's how you present yourself, you're gonna look better. It's almost like a job interview. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a job interview all the time, honestly. You know, make, you know, make yourself look the best you possibly can. You can get one suit jacket and you can get it half off from, uh, that's how I started. I, you know, when I was down in South Florida, I went to a tall man shop, you know, in Boca Raton and I had pink jackets with yellow lapels. But man, I made sure that I had the best looking jackets I possibly could. But I got those 50% off and I would put a hanky in there. And sometimes I would take like a magic marker and color a different color and put it in there and look different, look like a different yeah. outfit. Yeah. But if you just have a nice shirt and a jacket, you don't even need a tie, yeah. you know, like how you, you look fantastic well, I'm, right I'm, there. I'm a little underdressed by yeah. you, but most are when they're around a, you know, oh, a, come a on big now. time custom suit like this. But these but are present tremendous. yourself, present yep. yourself on the Zoom because people will believe your message it's it, it's awful that it's more of a visual medium, but it really, really is. And it's it's the most important thing. 
you know, when when TV stations look at resume tapes, you know, you'll you'll you see so many females on the air all over, and they're beautiful girls. That's the first thing a news director sees, and it's striking. If you see good-looking guys and girls, they're going to put them on TV. Not saying that I was a good-looking guy, but I tried to do the best I could, show as much as video as I possibly could, you know, to cover up my face. But you know, that's it's so important when you're on those zooms to make yourself look as best you can. Yeah, and I appreciate you. you sharing that, especially for a lot of our audience that I think will really take those pearls wisely. So, the other thing I wanted to pivot on, Rick, and you've you've shared tremendous insight around presentation, mentality, kind of the process to put yourself in the position that, that ultimately you had as a multiple Emmy winner. But I know family's a big part of your life as well. Walk our audience through, number one, the importance of your family, but number two, how you balance being gone at midnight in various arenas all over the country. Just some, some life lessons learned through that. I have an amazing wife, and I know you do too. <laughs> it's you know I have three I have three boys, and uh, one's about to turn ten. He's an elite basketball player. He's five foot two, you know, at ten, you know, and he's he's really fun to watch. And then I have eight year old twins, all boys. It's crazy. And I think about the day that my twins were born was the day before Friday night high school football, right? And I knew when they were born, I was like, I'm working the next day. I can't get off, right? And it was opening night in Texas high school football. They were born on August 25th. Okay. And there's no way I was missing that. Yeah. You know, and my, but my wife was always so understanding about all that stuff. And she's an unbelievable mom. She works as well. And, you know, we paid for a lot of daycare. We pay a lot of money for other people to raise our kids. No, I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, we, we've had family support as well. Uh, my wife is originally from Hong Kong, so she has a lot of family from over there in California. And then I'm East Coast, so we don't really have a lot of family here. You know, my mom comes out. Um, there, We only have one grandparent that's in the family. And uh, so that's that's kind of difficult for us, you know, in the early years when I was doing the, uh, you know, the seven o'clock pregame show and the postgame show. Sometimes you have postgame shows on the West Coast and you're in the studio till one, one o'clock in the morning, you know, and I come home and the light's still on and the twins are like, you know, up. And my wife's like, here, I'm going to sleep, you know, and it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I, I think for all working families and those that were wired to win like yourself, you, you need a support staff. I think the, the greatest gift any man can have is really the, the cell of himself and, and the spouse that supports him. So I know you've outkicked your coverage, as have I. So I appreciate you you sharing that to our audience, because I do think that's things, especially for our community, Rick, this, this win the day mantra that most of our members have is finding the balance, finding the support staff, but ultimately, you know, there's, there's synergy amongst both parties to really allow the spouse, which in your case, elevate your career and build that brand. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I will say this. There was that one time where I was, and the, you know, the first two years of the twins, I mean, basically I had three in diapers. I don't think I slept for three years. I mean, I used to fall asleep with the twins laying on me you know, and I was always afraid I was going to roll over them. Yeah. I mean, I was so dog tired all the time. But then I'd go into work and I'd be like, all right, let's go. Because I love going to work, man. It was like, oh, I'm ready to work and do something. But there was one night I came home. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning after a Spurs West Coast game with Sacramento or somebody like that. And I pull up in the driveway. And my oldest, who is like about a year and a half old, he's at the window and he's jumping up and down. He sees me like this. And I see the light on and I'm like, oh, man, I got to sleep. 
So I like back out the car and I go on the other street and I go sleep in my car for two hours. <laughs> and my wife's like, man, I, you know, Zachary thought you came home. You know, what's uh, and I'm like, oh, I don't know why he thought that, you know, I'm like, uh. but there was that one time where I like, I got to sleep. Well, in this day of social media, I think she'd be able to track you and everything yep. else. So that that's yep. a whole nother thing. Well, Rick, you've, you've shared some tremendous insight. The one thing for our audience that I think is a testimony to the way you've landed. And I think it's a big, you know, it is the X factor, et cetera, for those that are, you know, excelling at whatever career they have. You and I didn't really prep for today. One of the reasons is that, and I'm a big believer in this, lions don't stretch before they go after a zebra. I think for those that didn't know Rick Renner, they're seeing behind the curtain a bit on how you built this brand, this recognizable face, this tremendous career in broadcasting, any perspective or pearls you want to land with our audience on anything we haven't covered up to this point? Well, uh, you know, you talked about family before. Um, my father was a Navy pilot, went to the Naval Academy, um, was a running back, Naval Academy. And, uh, you know, he, he died in Vietnam when I was very young. I was like four. And uh, I have two brothers. Uh, my youngest brother was just a baby. He's uh, now worked in the Fort Lauderdale Police Department um, and one of the oldest tenured guys there, you know, almost second command to the chief of police down there. He does unbelievable things. I always look at him and I say that I've accomplished nothing when I think about all the stuff that he's uh, had to deal with. And my other brother, um, you know, was a year and a half old when my father died. And growing up without a father was very hard. You know, I always looked at other people and I wanted their father to be my father. You know, and I told you earlier in the show about, you know, my uncle who was a father figure in our lives who dropped everything to be there for us, you know, and uh, it was it was an awesome thing having him. But, you know, I always wanted that dad and that father figure. And I looked at people that didn't like their fathers or, you know, in South Florida that had nothing to do with their fathers or their fathers didn't have anything to do with them. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, your father's alive, you know, and mine, mine was a hero. And, uh, you know, our family went through a really tough time, you know, when we were young. Imagine my mom with three kids, you know, under five years old, you know, and she's by herself. The whole family's in New York, and she's like, you know what? I'm, I can't be up there. It's going to be a sympathy tour forever. I got to do this on my own. And so we moved down to Florida, where my dad was stationed. He was stationed in Jacksonville. Um, for, for many years. So we were, were down there as kids and stuff like that. And then we had family that eventually all the New Yorkers always moved to Florida to get away from the cold. And uh, so eventually they moved down and then we had more support and stuff later on in life. But my mom was, you know, she's the strongest person I've ever met in my life. You know, I mean, you know, what she do, looking back and knowing being a father, like she handled this by herself and we lived and survived. Um, you know, one of her biggest passions was he, uh, he graduated from the Naval Academy and uh, was on his way to go into the Pentagon. And he, you know, he died a lieutenant commander. Um, but during that process, you know, he went to Vietnam, you know, got shot down, went through the concentration camps and all that stuff and then came back. But he wanted to go back there to get guys out of a squadron. And so he went back there and uh, he was a pilot and uh, he crashed. The weather was bad and he crashed off the side of an aircraft carrier and, and obviously passed away. And his co-pilot was also a man that had three children that were under five years old. So those are two Navy guys, unbelievable sacrifice that lost, you know, uh, that were lost for their families with three young boys. You know, the Joseph family was the other one. 
Um, and my life's passion has always been to learn the most I can about my father because I didn't know him. I wasn't around him very much. There are very few pictures of me with him. And uh, that was always one thing that I just always wanted to have more knowledge. And in my journeys, one of my stops was in Pensacola, Florida, which is where all the Navy pilots go to. Yeah. You know, that's where the Blue Angels yeah. are. And that's their first stop when they get out of the Naval Academy as they go there. You know, and there were retired guys that would just reach out to me. Hey, are you B. Frenner's son? And then I'd go to their house and they'd have all these crazy pictures of me yeah. as a, you know, as a toddler playing with their daughter in a sandbox in Albany, Georgia or somewhere, you know, like that. And so it was fascinating to hear those stories and, you know, learning that knowledge. And one person I've always wanted to really be able to get one on one was Roger Staubach. And when I first got to this market, because he knew my dad, he, you know, obviously played quarterback yeah. at the Naval Academy. They missed each other, but they knew each other. And I always wanted to really kind of talk to him. And uh, I was in so many different environments where we'd be interview him and they'd whisk him away. And it's a bunch of microphones, you know, and uh, I never really got that chance. He was always at doing a lot of charity stuff with Troy Aikman um, for breast cancer and all that kind of stuff. And there was a couple times I got almost had a chance to get him and didn't really get to talk to him about it. But then, you know, when we were going through the Gulf War, I went over to his uh, his place in Addison and, you know, his uh, real estate company, they were one of the architects that were being considered to do the Freedom Tower in New York City. Mm -hmm. So this was my opportunity to kind of talk to him about that. And I know the families, the 9-11 families, they really liked his plans more than the ones that they went for because I know that his his company, they really protected the footprint and it was really interesting of the two buildings of the World Trade Center. And so I got a chance to meet him there and, uh, and interview him during that time. I wore my dad's ring. And then he was like looking at me, he's like, give me that ring. He looked at it, he's like, I knew it. And, and so we started talking. He remembered my mom's name. He knew that there were three children. And uh, he told me some story about my dad um, in flight school that uh, he scared a bunch of guys flying helicopters underneath bridges or something like that. And it was just, it was so fun to hear those stories. Just so fun to hear that. And I remember telling Troy that later. And Troy, Troy said, uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me that he remembered all that. Wow. And those are the, the stories that I loved. And, you know, later in later years, my brother has been so involved uh, with, you know, helping families that have lost, um, lost, you know, people to military stuff um, and uh, lost and fallen police officers and firemen. And he'll make those trips to New York City for those kids and those families that have gone through it like we did. Yeah. And, you know, all these police officers from South Florida, they'll get together and they drive their cars up there. So you'll be up in Washington, D.C. and you'll see Boca, you know, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, all these South Florida cities. And they drive up there and they give up a whole week and take these kids around Washington, D.C. and tell them how important. And, and you know, and my brother's kept in touch with a lot of those kids and stuff. And in those journeys, he's also gone to a lot of, you know, Army-Navy games. That was always something we did in our family. Yeah. And we would, you know, pretend like my dad was there with us watching those games, you know, have a seat for him yeah. and all that. And uh, my brother, one time he was at an Army-Navy game and uh, he was in the bathroom and he met a guy who was actually on the aircraft carrier when my father passed. Wow. And, he, and he told us through his eyes what happened. So what happened was there was a tail hook on the back of this plane. And when you land, my father flew A5s, the big planes that take lots of pictures of things at that time. Now you do it with satellites. Sure. But you know when he landed, the hook was messed up on the back of his tail of his, 
of his fight and somebody had missed this. And so he was full throttle down. The weather was awful, went over the side. Well, this guy that my brother met was in the command center and was watching the whole thing. So the plane went down, he saw it came up and he knew they tried to eject. I guess it didn't work. And uh, he saw them and he saw them went down. And he knew about, and he remembered that whole moment and told wow. me, you know, it was really interesting because we never really knew the details. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of interesting. And, and meeting people over the years that knew my father from school and from the Navy, uh, it's just, gosh, there's so many people that had those kind of stories. And, you know, back then, guys were, you know, they were, there were so many guys that were dying at that time and they didn't have the records that they do now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my mom's life passion was to have a stone in Arlington Cemetery, you know, and I remember she wrote letters to Bill Clinton and all these, you know, the president and all these people and everybody was like, well, he didn't technically die in Vietnam was what we got back. You know, Clinton didn't send that, but his people did. And, you know, I don't know the qualifications for something like that. And then uh, one of my relatives was down in Washington, D.C. And just for the heck of it, looked up my dad's name. And sure enough, he had a stone. And we never knew about it. So wow. this is this was like a life passion for my mom yeah. for that to be. And we find out that there was actually a stone with my dad's name on it, you know, in, in Arlington Cemetery. And the thing that was crazy is when we found that out, we're like, well, why didn't anybody just look it up, you know, when we constantly. And so, you know, what we did is we took my mom. We made a trip up there. The whole family from New York came down. And Madeline Albright, the Secretary of State, she came there, apologized wow. to my mom. They did a whole folding of the flag, flag ceremony some, you know, 25 years later. And they had the guys with the guns and everything. It was, it was a very emotional moment for my mom sure. and for our family to go through that and see that. And now it's a place that, you know, we go back and we see all the time. And then you, you're just, it's breathtaking. If anybody's ever been there, you see all the stones and you think about every one of those families that have been affected by the wars and all that stuff because freedom is not free. There's no doubt about that. And uh, there's so many people like my father um, that have gone through this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we... When I was in Jacksonville, this is when it all went down. Um, you know, they ended up putting him on the Vietnam Memorial Wall right outside of the stadium that wow. the Jacksonville Jaguars play in the Florida Georgia game and all that stuff. Wow. And that has meant so much to our family because he was stationed in Jacksonville for so many years. And with that, you know, because I was a so-called celebrity, they did a story on this in the Florida Times Union in Jacksonville, just like the Dallas Morning News there. And uh, they, uh, I cannot believe all the military people that have reached out to me from that story. It ended up on USA Today that had the same story that they were like, we had a stone too and we didn't know, you know, and my, my father's, my grand, my grandparents, my father's mother, mother and dad, you know, they died shortly after he did and they died of a broken heart. And if they only knew that they could have gone to Washington DC and seen that, you know, you think about all those stories and stuff, but there are so many families that have gone through the same thing. And it's, it's just really remarkable. Well, I can't, number one, thank you for sharing that story and having the courage to do so. But obviously I hear legend, I hear sacrifice, and there's no doubt about it. Your father is looking down from above in admiration and appreciation for what he raised. Um, and kudos to your mom and the courage she had, because I think those things that you experienced young in life that you know, hopefully none of our audience have to go through, But Rick, I think that's really what gave you the mentality, the vision, the mindset to 
to do things for your father. And um, obviously for the military, the appreciation, I think no one can say it more. Um, it, it, it's, it's very inspiring. And I think for our audience, Rick, you've shared a lot of pearls. And for those that didn't know who Rick Renner was behind the scene, the guy that's obviously doing most of the interviewing, we've gotten a peek there to see how you built that brand, how you carry yourself. And I know there's big things ahead. In closing, do you want to comment on, on what you're doing now to continue to elevate your brand? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I, I've been looking, uh, you know, I was laid off from Valley Sports Southwest um, in the summer. And uh, so I've been looking, you know, for jobs all around the country. And the hardest thing is I love it here. I love Texas. I love Texas high school football. And my wife has a great job and we just, we love it here. We don't want to leave really. So every time I've, you know, I've been going for these jobs in LA, Denver and Minneapolis, like I want to live there, you know, um, great market, great sports town, but uh, very cold. I don't like the cold, but I've, uh, I've, I've been looking and looking and it keeps keeping me here. You know, and so I've started up a podcast called Rick Renner's Texas High School Hysteria. And basically we're interviewing, you know, the biggest programs, the coaches, the star players, the biggest stories in the state, past and present. You know, so, you know, the last couple episodes, we talked to Jalen Hurts's dad, wow. Avarian Hurts, who's the head football coach at Channel View. And uh, really fun to hear things through his eyes, um, obviously his father and his head coach. And then we talked to Adam Cook, who is the head coach of Patrick Mahomes at White House over there in East Texas. And, you know, we're going to talk to some of the favorites out there. You know, Coach Buck, Tim Buchanan, oh, yeah. uh, over there at Alito, who has 11 state championships. Uh, really fun conversation with him, the most decorated coach in our state's history. I kidded him, like, what are you going to do with that 11th ring? You're going to put it on his toe? He said his kids want to make it a nipple ring, but I'm not sure if that's going to really work. Um, but it was really fun talking to him. And as soon as I did the interview with him, he literally retired right after that. So, that, that was kind of disappointing because I wanted him to keep going. You know, he's one of the greats. I got to get your, your dad on the show. Um, one of the most respected guys in this state, one of my favorite guys and just an unbelievable human being, um, you know, and all his success over the years. I love him so much. Um, but that's what we're doing. And it's gotten great reaction right away. I'm doing that. And then I'm also selling solar panels for your houses. Blue Raven Solar, um, which is one of the highest, um, you know, rated companies in the United States, they're partners with SunPower, and the best part is we're saving people money. Uh, it's good for the environment, and we're putting more value into people's homes. So it's exciting to do this. Some homes work, some homes don't. You know, it's one of those things that you know not every house is perfect for solar. You know, you got to check it out and see if it is. Um, but the ones that are, it's a great advantage, and it's it's something that can really save a lot of people money. And I like helping people, so that's that's what I'm doing right now. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing that. I know anything you approach, there will be passion. You continue to hear me say that word, and I think your 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 charisma, your delivery, anything you do, Rick, is going to be at the at the highest level of performance. I can't thank you enough for sharing your journey. One thing we do on Win the Day with Wasson podcast, and it's kind of a mantra for our community. In closing, Rick, we rise, we shine, we grind, we impact. Thank you so much for tuning in. We had the living legend himself, yeah. Rick Renner, on. Look forward to the next episode. If it ends in Y, let's win the day.